1865, northern Georgia was in the grip of its own domestic civil war. Violence was nearly unchecked. But 50 years later, people didn't remember it that way. Everybody was on the same side in the old days. How did that transformation take place? We'll talk to our guest, Dr. Jonathan Saris, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Have you let your website go stale? Wish you didn't have to wait for your web developer to return your call when you want to update content? You don't have to. Now you can easily and instantly manage your own website content using affordable Avalar technology. Avalar is a website development and hosting company that provides turnkey internet solutions for companies like yours that need to stay focused on core business. Avalar gives you the power to control your website and make updates and additions in real time without having to learn HTML or other complicated programming tools. Websites powered by Avalar feature capabilities that attract more customers and enhance relationships with existing customers. Avalar offers a multitude of leading-edge solutions, including lead generation and referral tracking, shopping carts and payment processing, membership management, and search engine optimization, to name a few. Take advantage of the full power of the Internet using Avalar technology at www.avalar.com. That's A-V-A-L-A-R.com. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Today talking with Dr. Jonathan Saris, author of A Separate Civil War, Communities in Conflict in the Mountain South. And I pause as I have to quickly grab my notes and subtitle <laughs> the book accurate because, as we mentioned talking in our first segment, uh, it's Tropical Storm Day here in North Carolina, and you and I are both shut out of our respective university offices and calling from home uh, because everything is closed down on this day in, in 2006. But uh, the phones work and uh, everything else is going well, so we'll continue talking about this this subject. When we left off, we were talking about the violence in the northern Georgia mountains that had gripped the area by the end of the war, how, how the conditions had, had devolved from simply uh, political conflict into open violent conflict, and then finally into a sort of uh, uh, existential, almost meaningless violence uh, of, of people like William Gatewood, who just uh, led his band of criminals through the mountains, killing whoever got in his path. And had the book ended there, I would have thought, well, I've certainly learned something here, but it doesn't. It goes on to talk about what happens after the war, and I found that particularly fascinating because that really shattered some preconceived notions I had about uh, about the mountains and about the South and, and about Reconstruction generally. Uh, one of the things that fascinated me was the role of the Freedmen's Bureau in this area after the war, because I would have thought there wouldn't be much of a Freedmen's Bureau in an area where the slave population was so small. Uh, but they were there. 
Well, they were there, and um, now uh, you're right. The slave population was small in in my two counties. Although in Lumpkin County, uh, the more developed one, uh, for an Appalachian county, it had a a relatively high uh, uh, population of African Americans. About. 10% or so, but but even so, it, it was not, um, you would think, on top of the list of the, of the Freedmen's Bureau's priorities. Accordingly, um, although the Freedmen's Bureau in, in North Georgia is, as elsewhere, trying to defend the rights of, of uh, freed people, it also ends up spending a lot of its time trying to uh, serve as an intermediary between the wartime Confederates and those who had opposed the Confederacy during the Civil War, uh, which is it was interesting from my perspective, looking at how the Freedmen's Bureau dealt with uh, whites um, in the South following the war. And they, and they are, uh, as I say, often caught in the middle as both sides engage in recriminations and rancor uh, and, and attempts at vengeance. For, for the very ugly things that had happened in that community during the Civil War. So the Freedmen's Bureau, on the one hand, is a sort of U.N. peacekeeping force, <laughs> but they're also a kind of welfare agency. They, you point out they, they provided f- food relief uh, to both white and black people. Absolutely. Uh, North Georgia um, was, by all accounts, uh, essentially destitute, um, when when the war ended uh the war had been hard on the region generally uh again um the the poor and even not so poor farmers of the area had really suffered a a perfect storm of uh political social and climatological problems during the war itself um and and people were um literally starving in north georgia and that's that was the the bureau's first priority to get food up into the mountains which was no mean trick um uh what I've said earlier aside, these communities were uh, rugged. The terrain was difficult to traverse, and um, and many people were going hungry long after the guns fell silent simply because the, the Freedmen's Bureau had difficulty getting wagons uh, up along these narrow mountain roads. It was um, uh, an almost impossible task they were given to to uh, to try and resolve. And and they're still dealing with conflict. The the two. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the Confederates and anti-Confederates are certainly not reconciled at the end of the war. Uh, all not at all. Not at all. Uh, on both sides, uh, people turn to the courts, as they often do, to try and remedy past injustices. Uh, the war is over, and those who... Those who oppose the Confederacy, I guess, feel somewhat vindicated and empowered by the fact that the Confederacy is lost, and they immediately, uh, in many cases in North Georgia, try to uh, uh, seek uh, uh, Vengeance through the judicial judicial system and to rectify past wrongs, things that that uh, uh, property that had been stolen by Confederate uh, impressment agents or crimes in their view that had been committed against the Tory population, like um, uh, like murders that took place uh, in Lumpkin County in November of 1864. There's a trial on that in 1867 in which people try and hold the former Confederate authorities accountable uh, for what's seen by them as as out-and-out murder of their people during the Civil War. Uh, And and on the other side as well, there are attempts to um, uh, quash uh, the the former Tories and to to make sure they don't get um, out of hand now that uh, their side has won. The, The former Tories, many of them, now go with the political party of the North, the Republicans, and uh, you point out that, that Fannin County becomes uh, develops a Republican majority, while Lumpkin uh, maintains a, a Democratic majority. 
So you've, you've got the conflict continuing now uh, in a very basic political way. That's correct, and and um, uh, it, it's a it's a pretty dramatic. Uh, uh, political earthquake in North Georgia, uh, Fanning County, which had been rapidly Democratic, you know, the party of the small farmer uh, before and even during the war, uh, converts very quickly uh, to a Republican majority, which it keeps for quite some time. I'm not sure about this, but but well into the into the 20th century, I believe, Fanning County was voting Republican um, uh, for probably a lot of reasons, uh, but not the least of them was um, the the poor white farmers of Fanning County uh, see the Republican Party as their ticket to political empowerment and and also uh, social welfare. Let's not forget that the Freedmen's Bureau is supplying uh, the county's poor with uh, with rations, and and that is uh, has a tendency to get voters' attention. There's also the uh, the Moonshine War. Uh, they're still not done fighting. Right. Well, uh, moonshine is sort of one of the enduring uh, uh, symbols uh, people think about when they think about Appalachia, uh, and it was a, a major industry in the mountains. And after the war is over in the 1870s, uh, when the federal government tries to assert uh, uh, tax uh, or, or to reassert its its, um, its uh, taxing authority over uh, independent distilleries, there is a, 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 quite a bloody conflict in North Georgia that's very similar to what happened during the war, the difference is um, uh, there are people of both um, wartime persuasions on both sides of the issue. You have uh, uh, distillers who had been Confederates and distillers who had been Tories, and you have on both sides of the equation those trying to enforce uh, the, the tax laws, uh, uh, both both former Yankees uh, or former Tories and former Confederates. And you, you, what's interesting in my perspective is how whatever interest group you're dealing with, when it comes to the Moonshine War, they tried to always hearken back to the uh, the uh, the wartime experience. I remember one distiller in particular uh, complaining that he'd been arrested by federal authorities in the 1870s, I believe in Fannin County, and, and he was complaining because during the war he had been a, a Tory. He had, in fact, fought in the Union Army, and he's essentially saying, look, uh, I, I, you know, I helped the the federal government during the war, and now here you are arresting me for pursuing, uh, you know, something which is uh, my livelihood. Uh, things get get very mixed up very quickly uh, after the war. Well, they, they, I would say they they're mixed up from from the beginning and and through the end and yeah. the middle too. There, there's uh, to anybody who likes a uh, a neat historical paradigm uh, who says uh, you know money is always the answer. You can always you know, money is the main motivator. That's what makes people do things. So you can analyze everything by uh, economic and class differences, or uh, if you want to say it's race, or if you want to say it's any single explanatory mode. Uh, read your book and, and throw up your hands in despair. <laughs> well, perhaps that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think no, uh, no, I don't think it is at all. But but, but uh, I, you point out the complexity of the situation. Very much so. Yeah. There, yeah. There's just no. Uh, you say when, when the revenuers and the moonshiners are going at it, there's no uh, set pattern by which you can predict who would be on which side. It's true, but I guess what I found most interesting is that which, whichever, whether you are a moonshiner or whether you are a supporter of the revenue laws, and whichever side you'd fought on the, in the Civil War, it always came to 
to that. There was always the legacy of the war back there, and and what's interesting is the way that these these other fa- all these factions tried to make sense of what was going on in their community right then. These moonshine wars, and try to square it with whatever their record had been during the Civil War, and trying to use the war. Uh, the war's memory as a way to score uh, points in in the present, which I think is is, is the way in which all this memory stuff, which is very hot now in our field, as as one of your yeah. recent guests uh, attested, um, the reason why that's so important because the way people remember the past um, not only shapes the way they react to the present, but but helps them to explain and justify why they're acting the way they are in the present. And, and you really you see a prime case of that here. You've got the United Daughters of the Confederacy and other uh, Confederate groups presenting a lost cause version of the war in which everybody in North Georgia was a loyal Confederate except for a few bad guys. Right. Uh, these right. Who, um, who yeah, are all bad. Uh, North Georgia uh, did have its its uh, its lost cause adherents, and like the rest of the South, it did try and portray itself as as uh, um, a loyal, having been a loyal Confederate uh, area during the war, and one that was proud of having served for the Confederacy. The problem is uh, it, its history, and uh, and the fact that there are so many people in the region that. Uh, in fact, had had fought against the Confederacy during the Civil War, and they won't be quiet. They oh, I, generally I are that. not the ones who are in power. So what I found interesting about the the counter-lost cause in North Georgia, the people who had been anti-Confederates, is that they were sort of under the radar. They had to memorialize their Civil War uh, in their own uh, small ways. They didn't have the imprimatur of local uh, Daughters of the Confederacy or local elites. In general, they had to uh, fight pretty hard to make sure people remembered that not everyone had been a Confederate during the war, whether that's observing uh, uh, United States Memorial Day in small private services or whether that is publishing an editorial in a local newspaper urging people not to forget the Union veterans of the area. Um, Union uh, Former Union adherents in North Georgia have to, um, in a way, fight the war all over again uh, after... I, I thought they did a great job of it. Uh, I, I love the fact that it, you point out they formed a, a GAR post, mm-hmm. uh, which is unusual for a former Confederate state. Right. And then they named it uh, the William T. Sherman post. Yeah, uh, it, that it, took it, some it, nerve. It's impossible to believe it wasn't calculated to, that, that, to, I thought to it was get brilliant. the goat of pro-Confederates. Calling a, a, anything in Georgia, naming it after uh, William Tecumseh Sherman, who made the state howl, uh, and during the last year of the war, must have been a calculated effort to yeah. uh, to assert uh, a different vision. Put them in the eye. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And, and you mentioned another uh, fellow. I think his name was Dowdy, yeah. uh, who who shows up at these Confederate reunions, but he was a well-known deserter. Absolutely. Uh, you know, imagine, uh, imagine, uh, say, John Kerry uh, going to a, a VFW reunion of, of Vietnam veterans, and in uh, the reception he might have gotten from some of them. Uh, Clifford Dowdy, uh, who had been a Confederate during the war, went to Confederate reunions and talked about how he had deserted the cause how the cause had not served him well, how he was proud to have fought against the Confederacy. And a lot of people took umbrage uh, at that in uh, in his home county. Well, he, he, he challenged them. He said there were 13,000 deserters in the war, and now I'm apparently the only one. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that's apparently right. everybody was loyal in your version of the past, except Absolutely. me. Absolutely. 
uh, a great story. Well, there are lots of great stories in your book. Uh, I recommend to all listeners you go out and get a copy of it. It's not... Uh, the first thing I asked you, Jonathan, when you told me it was out, was how long is it? Because it's it's uh, the, the the length of the book is about 184 pages. It's been out since July. Uh, available in paperback through the University of Virginia Press. So go go and get it, read it, and uh, listeners, thank you for listening. Jonathan, thank you for joining me today on this wet day here in North Carolina. Thanks so much, Jerry. Stay and stay inside. And same to you. And listeners, we'll talk to you next week on Civil War Talk Radio.